So we're in Luke chapter 7 this morning, and if you'll recall, a couple weeks ago we learned about centurions, and um, centurions weren't nice people. They weren't your closest friend. They, didn't, they weren't guys of compassion or humility or gentleness. They were like drill instructors. They were men that met out discipline. They, they had to control murderous soldiers. I mean, you've got to be a tough guy. But we met one centurion who's really odd. I mean, he was loving and respectful and humble. I mean, talk about humble. He was so humble that he didn't consider himself worthy to even go talk to Jesus to ask for a favor. So he sent some people to him. And then Jesus, being who he is, decided to go to the centurion's house. So he sent other people to tell Jesus, no, don't come to my house. I'm not worthy to have you at my house. Just say the word and heal my servant from a distance. This centurion was amazing. So I called the sermon an odd centurion. And I just found it interesting that as you read through Luke, you come across a Pharisee after the centurion. And as I read the story, I realized, wait a minute. We got the odd centurion. We kind of got an odd Pharisee too. And then I got to thinking, when Jesus tells stories, and the stories that are recorded in the New Testament, Jesus talking to people and teaching people, he's often just not meeting our expectations. When I say our, I mean first century people. To us, it's like, it doesn't matter, whatever. But to them, he was always blowing people's minds. Talking to people you wouldn't expect him to talk to. They would say things you wouldn't expect them to say, like the centurion, or do things you wouldn't expect him to do. And now we've got the exact same thing. First we saw a centurion, now we see a Pharisee. We would expect Pharisees to be the polar opposites of centurions. Now I'm going to have to retrain you first, though, before I go any further. Because in Christian circles, Pharisees have a bad rap. Which I guess makes sense because almost every time they occur in the New Testament, they're doing something wrong. But Pharisees, in general, especially in the first century, they weren't the bad guys, they were the good guys. Pharisees had a reputation of being the godly people. If you had in your mind right now, when, when I say godly, what comes to your mind? Um, a nun? Uh, um, priest? Uh, I, I don't know. Whatever comes to your mind, what came to their mind was a Pharisee. So today, people think of Pharisees as bad guys, but in that time, they weren't bad guys. Pharisees should have been the exact opposite of a centurion. Centurions were harsh. Pharisees should have been gentle. Centurions were arrogant. Pharisees should have been humble. Pharisees, uh, centurions were mean. Pharisees were nice. The first century historian, Josephus, so remember, he lived during the days of the disciples, during the days of the Pharisees. He wrote about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Let me read to you what he said about Pharisees. The cities give great attestations to them on account of their entire virtuous conduct, both in the actions of their lives and their discourses also. What they say and what they do, everybody agrees that they're virtuous. They're good guys. That was the reputation of the Pharisees in the first century. In his book, Wars of the Jews, he wrote this, the Pharisees are friendly to one another and are for the exercise of concord and regard for the public. 
So what are the Pharisees like, Josephus? Well, they're nice to each other. They're nice to the public. Everybody respects them. They're for peace and unity. Boy, have we gotten a different picture, haven't we, over the years? So the godly men of society, those were the Pharisees. If you wanted to grow up and be godly, you wanted to grow up and be like a Pharisee. They were respected. They were the good guys. Now, there were religious bad guys, too. Those were the Sadducees. Here's what Josephus says about them. But the behavior of the Sadducees one towards another is in some degree wild, and their conversation with those that are of their own party is as barbarous as if they were strangers to them. So Josephus is saying the Pharisees get along, they like each other, and everybody likes them. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they don't even like each other. Nobody likes the Sadducees. Listen to what else he says. They addict themselves to the notions of the Pharisees because the multitude would not otherwise bear them. He says the Sadducees, in some part, have to act like the Pharisees. Otherwise, nobody would put up with the Sadducees at all. Now, Josephus was a great historian, but he was also aligned with the Pharisee party. So maybe he was being a little harsh and a little good on the Pharisees, but hey, he's a good historian. He's the best we got for the first century. I'm going to take him at his word. Everybody said the Pharisees were the good guys, the Sadducees were the bad guys. So now knowing that, when we talk about this Pharisee, right after talking about the centurion, we'll see again a flip side. The centurion didn't meet our expectations. The Pharisee is not going to meet our expectations either. But before we talk about this Pharisee in Luke 7, I do want to warn you to be careful about stereotypes. Zacharias, Zachariah, John's dad, John the Baptist's dad, Zachariah was a priest, a good, godly man. In fact, the scripture says that about him and his wife, Elizabeth, that they were godly, upstanding, faithful people. But he was a priest. The priesthood were the Sadducees. I don't know if it was possible to be a priest and not even be a Sadducee. So if he was a Sadducee, he wasn't a bad guy. He was a godly man. And yet the Sadducees were the bad guys. And we think the Pharisees are bad guys, and I tried to disabuse you of that notion. But Nicodemus risked his reputation, his safety, and his name by going to Jesus after he was crucified and helping with his burial and the preparing of his body. So that would have made Nicodemus a Pharisee and a good guy. Zacharias, a Sadducee, and a good guy. We've got to be careful with stereotypes. They're not, things aren't always as they appear. And as I pointed out before, that seems to be Jesus' speciality. He always wants to point out to people, things are not always as they appear. Perfect case in point. Found this news article on several websites. The one I pulled the quote off of is examiner.com. Listen to what it says. A group of tattooed bikers rescued 180 stranded kittens yesterday afternoon as part of their in-your-face approach, approach to animal rights activism. They call themselves Rescue Inc. I-N-K. Bikers? Aren't they outlaws and bad guys and tough guys? Can you just see their, you know, piercings and their tattoos and their leather jackets holding a bunch of kittens? Oh, kitty, little kitty. It doesn't fit our stereotype. And yet... These guys are active in rescuing kittens. 
Bikers are supposed to be outlaws, the bad guys, but sometimes they're the good guys. Some centurions are supposed to be the bad guys. Sometimes they're the good guys. Pharisees are supposed to be the good guys. Luke chapter 7, 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. All right, now, nowhere in this story is it going to say the Pharisee is a bad guy. In fact, he just invited Jesus to dinner. That's a nice thing to do. It's hospitality, it's respect. And it says, and he reclined at the table. Okay, they didn't eat like we eat today. We eat like this. We sit at a table and we eat. They, and it's going to be hard for you to see what we eat with the table there, they ate like this. They reclined on couches with their feet up at table level. Now, I don't like that idea very much. I don't want anybody's feet anywhere within my eyesight while I'm eating, especially if they're wearing sandals. <laughs> and they've just walked the dusty roads, and they show up at your house with sweaty, stinky, leathered, you know, leather after it's been in B.O. feet for years. So the custom was you show up to somebody's house and they have a servant wash your feet. And you can have dinner. And if they don't have a servant, uh, maybe they give you a bowl of water so you could wash your feet. So when it says they reclined at the table, I had to sh tell you about what's going on with the feet. All right? Because, verse 37, when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. What's going on here? Nobody knows. I'm even curious how this woman got in the house, why they would have even let her in. Nevertheless, she wiped them with her hair, his feet, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So he's sitting at the table having dinner. Nobody had washed his feet. And this woman, this sinful woman comes in, and she starts crying so hard that she's got enough water to wash his dirty feet. She must have been crying something awful. And she just starts wiping his feet with her hair. Awkward moment? What do you do? What do you say? You're, you're sitting at the table. You're, you're the Pharisee watching this. You're, you're the guest. You're, you're Jesus. Wow, what a moment. This didn't happen every day, people. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, so now we get a look into his mind. It's cool. God knows people's thoughts. And so we get to see what the man was thinking. He didn't say anything. He was smart enough to keep his mouth shut. But he was thinking something. This is what he was thinking. If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. He didn't say anything. He's just thinking. Jesus read his mind and said, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. All right, a few things here. If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him. So he wasn't exactly sure who Jesus was. He was doubtful. 
but he was offended. If he was a prophet, he would know who this woman is. Yeah, so? What's the point, Mr. Pharisee? Are you saying it's wrong for a sinful woman to cry on your feet and wash them with her hair? You know, I've read the Torah several times, the Old Testament. I've never found that prohibition in there anywhere. Thou shalt not have sinful woman wash your feet with her tears and hair. Thus saith the Lord. It's not in there. So what's he offended about? It's kind of how we get today. We get all judgmental and up in people's. We may not say anything. It may just be in our mind. We're offended at their behavior as if their behavior was sinful. This is nothing wrong that Jesus is doing here. But there's something the Pharisee is doing wrong right now. He's judging. See, he's loathing this woman when he should be loving this woman. Now, centurion, you'd expect to beat her and throw her out. Pharisee, you'd expect to get her up and put her at the table to eat with the family. But oh no, he's too holy to have a sinful woman in his house. And she certainly shouldn't be touching a prophet. He is just so religious that his religion has made him hate people. Tell me, have you seen that before? There's a church that gets on the news every once in a while. They hold up signs, all fags will go to hell. They protest at soldiers' funerals. These are haters. What has their religion done for them? It made them hate people. Wow. Religion's not... And then people say religion's bad. Religion's not bad. People are bad. See, Jesus, who was more religious than the Pharisee, loved this woman. It's funny that the same religion, they were both Jews, one resulted in love, one resulted in loathe. Very interesting. Well, I tell you, Jesus in the, the Bible story has always given us the flip side of everything. The centurion wasn't what we expected. And this woman's not what we expected. And either the Pharisee's response isn't what we expected or Jesus' response isn't what we expected. Everything's confusing now. I mean, the text calls her a bad woman. It says she's sinful. Well, use your imagination. You know, not too many options. Jesus all mortified? No. Is he all offended? No. She's a sinful woman who is now showing such great respect for Jesus, such love and faith. Her tears, why is she crying? She probably knows exactly what kind of woman she is, and she probably is regretting it. She's remorseful. She's repentant. She's coming, perhaps, to the only person on the planet who can help her. She is so lost, so mired in her guilt and shame. Maybe this prophet can help me. The Pharisee would have thrown her out. He should have been able to help her, too. Thank God Jesus was there. He knew how to deal with this situation the right way. Her act of service to Jesus was pure hum humility and love. Now, I've got a question. Why does she have to wash his feet? Why weren't his feet already washed? Because that Pharisee didn't have enough respect, enough decency, enough courtesy to offer Jesus water for his feet. So on the one hand, he invited him over for dinner. On the other hand, he doubted who he was and didn't give him water to wash his own feet. What's up with that? 
this idea of washing feet, it's lowly work. And who wants to do that? That's, you know, the slave's job. And it, like I said, if you don't have a slave, give them water, let them wash their own feet. You're not going to stoop down and wash somebody's feet. So this is happening towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry. I wouldn't be surprised if the disciples are there, or at least some of them. Maybe Peter was there, Simon Peter. But at the end of Jesus' ministry, something similar happens. All the disciples and Jesus get together for supper. It's Passover. They recline at the table. No servants, it's just the disciples. So we got 13 dirty feet. What's Jesus do? He takes off his robe, gets some water, kneels down at the feet of Peter, and starts to wash his feet. And Peter's like, no, you can't wash my feet. You're the Lord. This is low man's work. This isn't for you to do. Jesus said, I'm telling you his thoughts. The word just said, Peter said, you're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have nothing to do with me. You and I are quits. Peter said, wash away, Lord. Wash everything. Wash my head. Wash my body. Wash me. Peter, Jesus said, no, your feet are, will suffice. He said, I'm doing this to teach you a lesson. You call me Lord, Master. And you're right, I am. And if I'm your Lord and Master and I can wash your feet, shouldn't you wash one another's feet? Wow. Do you realize God became a human being and washed dirty feet because the disciples were too proud to do it? God humbled himself to the lowest level of servitude and washed people's feet. Now let me ask you, what can't you do now? I knew this guy had to change his granddad's diaper every day. I don't know if he wasn't a Christian, if he could have done it. But he was and he did. Man of God. Whose diaper can't you change? You too special, too proud? I am. But I'm learning that I better not be. This is a big dose of humility for me here. I've got to learn to humble myself much, much more. So, most people see this story about that woman because she features prominently, but I'm thinking the story's not about the woman at all. I, I think it's about the Pharisee. I don't know, Jesus, maybe he's just capitalizing on the moment and the, the story's about everybody. But Jesus calls attention to the Pharisee, calls him by name, Simon. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Simon doesn't know that Jesus just read his mind. He's about to find out. Verse 41, so Jesus now tells Simon, Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarius, denarius is single, denarii is plural. A denarius was a common day's wage for a laborer. So we'll just call it minimum wage. One day's wage, a silver coin. That was a day's wage. So, it says somebody owed him 500 and somebody 50. Well, 500 then would be roughly $30,000 in today's, you know, 500 days wages, somewhere around there. Take the holidays off, that sort of thing. 50 denarius, somewhere around denarii, somewhere around $3,000. 
in today's wage. So basically, Jesus is saying, two men owed a certain money lender. One owed him $30,000, the other owed him $3,000. Now, neither of them had money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman, and this woman is still kissing on his feet and washing his feet. He turns to the woman and he says to Simon, you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head. She has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. Whoa. I would love to see the Pharisee's face at this moment. I mean, is he under conviction? Does he get it? Or is he just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. But what a lesson. This is a theological treasure trove. Her many sins has been forgiven, for she loved much. He's saying this to Simon the Pharisee. Simon Peter, the apostle, might have been right there. I think he might have been, especially because of what Peter wrote. Listen to what Peter wrote later in 1 Peter 4.8. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. It's like he's probably got this situation in his mind when he says this. Listen to what he said again. Above all, this is the main thing, people. Above all, love each other. It's not what he says. Love each other deeply. There is shallow love. There's sloppy agape. You love people a little. But Peter says, no, love deeply. Deep love. It, there's a price to pay for it. It, it hurts. Love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. And I'm trying to think of the perspective here. Love covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean? Does that mean when somebody loves, their sins just start going away? Maybe. But I think one aspect to it that we should look at is when you love people deeply, you're forgiving them of their sins. It's as if their sins don't count anymore. They might do something to offend you, but ah, you love them deeply. You just, you just dismiss it. You know, when our kids snap at us, or our brothers snaps at us, or our wife snaps at us, or our boss snaps at us, we deal with it. We get over it. But when our peer snaps at us, we get up all in their face and indignant. How dare you talk to me that way? Love one another deeply. Sins have no effect. It's like they slide right off of love. Love is powerful. And that's why I call today's sermon the the one remedy for every ill, love. Her many sins are forgiven because she loved much. You love much? You want your many sins forgiven? I mean, of course, they're, they're forgiven in Jesus. I understand that. 
But still, the lesson of love is powerful. And what Jesus said and what Peter said wasn't even new. The Pharisees should have already known this. All Jesus was doing was quoting the Old Testament. Listen to what Proverbs 10:12 says. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Why was Jesus so amazing in his lessons? He didn't teach much new. He was amazing because he lived it. He demonstrated it, demonstrated it in his life. And he didn't take no garbage from nobody. He's sitting right there with a Pharisee and he just said, I'm going to teach you something. Boom. It's not just that it was not new, but he knew how to properly apply it. See, the devil knows the scriptures, but he doesn't know how to properly interpret them. Pharisees might have known the scriptures, but those who weren't right with God, they didn't know how to properly apply them. For some reason, he thought his made-up holiness, his loathing, was more precious than biblical love. Didn't know how to properly apply it. The Pharisee, who memorized probably a good portion of the Bible, if not the whole Old Testament, missed on the biggest lesson. The Pharisee spent his life trying to find God through works. The woman found God through love. They both went years without God. But finally, she stumbled upon the answer, and she found God. Pharisee's still looking. So she's identified as a sinful woman, but she doesn't leave that house as a sinful woman. I wonder how the Pharisee left. Yeshua brothers, Yeshua's brother, Jesus' brother James, wrote this. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? It's no good. In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Nobody would say that Pharisee didn't have some sort of faith. He was a Pharisee, for goodness sakes. But someone will say to you, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without your deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do, by my deeds. The Torah, Law of Moses says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And James, Jesus' brother, calls that the royal law of Scripture. So I guess the only thing I want to send you home with this morning is that one thing. Love. Go do it. Just go out there. Love one another deeply. You know, see that box right there? We put that out once a month. This is a special box. Because the money that goes into that box is specifically for those who have needs within our congregation. Sometimes people who are sitting here worshiping right next to you don't know where their next meal is coming from or their water has just been shut off or they can't make a car payment. That box blesses them. Love one another deeply. That's one way to love. Overlooking when people do you wrong, that's another way to love. 
praying for people. It's another way to love. Serving in the church. You know, when I was at the trunk or treat, I was standing in the back corner just watching everything. Watching people dancing at the cakewalk and, and some of the kids receiving pumpkins that were being thrown into buckets and handing out candy and others taking pictures of people. Um, people standing at the jumping castle, keeping the kids safe in the jumping castle. Weren't even their kids. Why were they get there? Standing out in the chilly weather, serving our neighborhood. Because they, they're, they're loving people. That's why. And I was just watching them love and serve and live and laugh. And it just, it made my spirit sing. I was just so overjoyed with, with love to see people loving people. See, serving people isn't always just washing feet. Sometimes it's playing cakewalk games for somebody else. Serving can be fun. I'm serving right now, and I love what I'm doing. You see what I'm saying? Don't think of it, oh, I got to go serve, dang. Well, if that's how you feel about it, man, you need a new job. You need a new ministry. We got plenty around here. Dabble till you find the one you love. You know, when you got a ministry you love, you're waiting at the door for somebody to open up. You're not coming 10 minutes late. You're anxious to be there. You know what I'm saying? You do things like, Randy been serving the kids at this church for over 30 years in Awana. Why? He doesn't get paid. Because he loves doing what he's doing. He's gifted from God to do this, and he loves doing it. He doesn't show up late. He's happy to be here. And then he goes home, and he makes stuff for the kids. It's not enough that he just comes and teaches them, that he organizes a team of people to bless them. He goes home, and he goes hunting, and he goes hiking, and he brings stuff home, and he makes stuff for the kids because he loves doing it. I don't call him and say, Randy, you know, you're just not cutting it as an Awana director. He's like, Steve, get out of my way. You're slowing me down. You find a ministry like that, you know you're in the right place. And that's what ministry is. It's not sad and disturbing and miserable. It's a joy. Well, I've talked too much. Let's pray. God, thank you for the example of a couple of weeks ago of the centurion, today of this woman who came in sinful and left holy. Thank you for showing us an example of love and service. And I can't help but think that within our church this morning, we've got people like this woman and people like this Pharisee. Oh God, let us be a church of sinful women. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.